Welcome back to another episode of the We Love to Build podcast. As you can see, you can finally see me and the guest because we're going into video from now on. So I have with me today Dr. Eduardo Roja. So Dr. Roja is the Senior Sales Engineer and Security, security Analyst for Global Dots, which is a, an independent cloud and performance optimization integration partner. That's a, a mouthful. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. I really appreciate it. Why don't you tell everyone a little bit about what it is you do uh, to make sense of the introduction I just gave, because it's a lot of words. Sure, Sean. Um, first of all, thank you so much for the invitation. So basically, we Global Dots are a global uh, leader in cloud innovation. Um, uh, we like to call ourselves innovation hunters. We basically connect our customers uh, with the latest cloud and web technologies, and that goes from web security, web performance, DevOps, cloud management, cloud security, posture management, cloud cost optimization, and also advanced AI and machine learning uh, models. We are a team of uh, experienced engineers and architects offering, you know, an easy end-to-end -end innovation adoption. We will help in consulting, guide you through the implementation, deployment, and also into ongoing professional services. And we will proactively come to you with newer technologies, helping to solve the problems that you will kind of face tomorrow. So it says that you're a sales engineer and a security analyst. Is this a specific goal for the company? They want the people who are selling to be the people who actually understand the security that they're selling rather than just hiring a random salesperson and saying go? Correct. So uh, in Portugal, we have a saying which is like having the hands on the door. So we basically really work and implement the solutions and also guide our customers in the post-sales process of the sales cycle and obviously then help them achieving the maximum usage they could have of the security products we put in place. When we think about threats like uh, layer seven attacks or bots, we really make sure that our tools and solutions are performing the best they can, minimizing false positives, minimizing false negatives, maximizing true positives and making sure uh, our customers are happy with the products they get from us. So yes, we integrate, we implement, and we also then are there for the whole post-sale cycle. You just said a whole bunch of terms I've never heard of. So I'm going to start asking you about them because I don't understand them. And I'm pretty sure a lot of other people listening don't understand them either. What is a layer seven attack? Our internet is governed, let's call it by the Aussie layer, seven layer module. We have the transport layer. We have where, you know, we carry our bits and bytes of our communications. On top of that, we have the layer three and four, which are responsible for the transport and for the session. So organizing all of those bits into trackable um, pieces of information. And at the top of the layer of this kind of pyramid, we have the layer seven, the application layer. Think of things like HTTP, SQL, and so on. So when we talk about layer seven attacks, we talk attacks against the application. Think of SQL injections or cross-site scriptings and so on. That's basically the main task of a web application firewall to detect those attacks uh, and properly mitigate them. Does that make sense to you, Sean? Yeah, sure. Continue. Exactly. And then I mentioned um, yeah, false positives and false negatives, which is like the, a big problem in the security in 
industry, which is basically making sure we don't perform any classification mistakes. A false positive is classifying something as a threat or an attack while it is not. A false negative is classifying something as not being a threat while it is. In the web application firewall world, we use a number of rules and signatures that are in a database. So we run less into that risk. Of course, when there's a zero day exploit, then we are a bit more behind and have to develop new signatures for this attack. Um, in the bot world, in the automation world, where we constantly battle against web scrapers and fraudsters and try to stop account takeover attacks and, um, and credential stuffing. There it's sometimes there's a bit of a gray area where automation replicates so well the human behavior that it's sometimes difficult to properly distinguish between an automated request or, uh, or request coming from an automated tool versus a request coming from a real user. And that's where we really have a, a complex battle, let's call it like that, between achieving what I was mentioning before, the maximum performance, meaning detecting as much as we can, the highest true positive rate that we can achieve with the lowest false positive and false negative that is possible, right? So um, in this sense, classifying something as a threat, while it isn't, could have the consequence of a legitimate customer of yours being blocked from you know, finalizing a purchase or something of the like, right? While on the other hand, not detecting a threat would allow that attacker to complete their request, possibly allowing them to perform an account takeover or perform a, a, a scraping attack. Like, uh, yeah. All right. You've given me several more terms that I want to clarify. One of them is a zero day exploit and the other is scraping. So a zero day exploit is something, is an attack for which we still don't have a mitigation. We know how it works. We know what is happening, but we still don't have a signature. So if you think about also the log4j that we had at the, at the end of last year, there was a certain period of time in which that vulnerability was being exploited, but we weren't aware and we didn't have a signature to properly block it. As soon as the CV got uh, published, we started to write rules, uh, looking for instance, for specific strings or values in the user agent of the, of the request that we were seeing to properly mitigate them, right? So that was our first attempt at having the signature and passing from a zero day vulnerability to into something that we could properly mitigate with a rule. So earlier you were talking about trying to understand what keeps business owners up at night and trying to solve those problems. What keeps you up at night in, in terms of cybersecurity? Um, do you see any threats that aren't really publicly known very well or, or is there something specific you see coming down the line that really scares you? Yes and no. There's always some way of bypassing something and, and sometimes what keeps me more worried is some entry point that we're not covering in the whole delivery chain of my customers that then bypasses our protections and yes i mean launching ddos and heavy scraping attacks are not very cheap you know sometimes it's impressive like the amount of traffic and, and attacks that we see uh, on the wires these days and in terms of uh, something that we're working a lot in, uh, which is passwordless, you know, and, and having those business not uh, migrating from a password world into a passwordless world, the credential stuff in the account takeovers, right? People uh, having their passwords used in different, um, same passwords recycled and using different portals and then some password data leak and then some successful account takeover that is uh, sometimes difficult to prevent. Yeah, that 
that kind of stuff. I totally agree that we need to become passwordless, but what I'm seeing in its place is like biometrics, like fingerprints and facial recognition, things like that. Is that any more secure or are there attack vectors in that regard? Sorry to get technical for the audience. I, I think at some point in time, and this might be the year or the next year, we will migrate from accounts to identities, right? And uh, I think your biometrics, your your face, your fingerprint, your IDs, or and so on. These are this biometric data that univocally identifies you, right? And if we could use that and drop passwords and usernames, which just authenticate my identity with my service provider, we would probably be in a point where ATOs wouldn't happen at all because, uh, you know, there are no pass or credential staffing attack because there, there are no passwords to crack or to iterate through. Almost all of us have kind of FIDO-enabled devices uh, at our hands with... Um, you know, like we said, fingerprint sensors and face IDs and so on. So if we could use that data to authenticate ourselves with our uh, providers and assure that it's us accessing with our biometric data validating that request, I, I think we would probably be in a more secure world and we would sleep better at night. I want to push back on biometrics just a little, and it's not your fault. I'm just playing devil's advocate here. When police officers try to find evidence at a scene, they often look for the fingerprints of someone left behind, right? Correct, yeah. If we all are, are moved on to a fingerprint-based biometric authentication kind of standard, wouldn't it be easier to break into people's accounts if you can just lift their fingerprints off of any surface that they've touched? It would be easier to break a password or to find that password. There are a number of works in people trying to bypass face ID with reconstructing 3D models of people's faces. Face ID has been very successful in, in, in mitigating those. With fingerprints, yes, you could probably snuck out some fingerprints or, uh, or an eye, God knows, you know, and, and make some fake finger too. But at the end of the day, that biometric data would be attached to a device, you know, like my iPhone accepts my face and my fingerprints, not your iPhone. Your iPhone would accept my face or my fingerprints. So there's also a connection between biometric data and my device. My device with, without my biometric data is useless. And my biometric data with my device is also kind of, but I can always enroll a new device, right? But what happens is that actually all of that biometric data never really leaves your device, right? It's like a challenge that is sent to you that you sign back with your biometric and send that challenge sign back, kind of a public key cryptography challenge, you know? But at the end of the day, we, we need a revolution there. We need a change in, into passwords because uh, it's not just properly secure anyways. And then we also still rely on uh, two-factor authentication, which helps, obviously. But, you know, sometimes those SMS codes get lost or not sent. You know, there's also SIM swapping attacks that break that. But uh, I think this biometric is probably as secure as we can get and probably transitioning from a point where we stop talking about our accounts, but rather about our identities within those service providers, right? And then that biometric data could be the key and the guarantee of, of my identity when accessing those providers, whatever they might be, online retailers and so on. There's talk of kind of using blockchain for identity. I'm not against blockchain. I've been involved in the blockchain industry since 2015. I like it. I know that it's in its infancy, I know that there's a lot of problems with it, mostly scalability. Do you think that blockchain has the potential to kind of get rid of biometrics? 
or do you think there's a potential for them to coexist like biometrics that exist on a blockchain that are verified against a blockchain or do you think that biometrics would still beat out blockchain for security and safety that could be a point in time where both coexist and and, and biometric data your identity is then obviously authenticated in, in the blockchain uh, through your biometric i still have to gather my thoughts about it how these two would coexist but i i could see a future where or, or a present where they could coexist and help helping decentralizing authentication uh, peering it up but uh, it's it's a fairly complex topic i would say and uh, but yeah i mean something that most likely will come soon the way that i was thinking about it and i think the way that other people in blockchain are probably thinking about it is like like for example right now we pair our biometric um, signature to our device, right? So instead of pairing it to our device, we pair it to a transaction that exists on the blockchain. So we make a payment to the network and the network stores our biometric data. And then whenever we want to log into a device, it just like pings from the blockchain or you send a tra- like a mini transaction from the blockchain to that thing. So then it doesn't matter what device you use as long as you can prove your fingerprint to the blockchain, something like that. Could, could be something definitely interesting. My my concern is always somehow your biometric data being stored somewhere else than your local device. There's, you know, it's something that can definitely and will be explored, right? Yeah, it's it's a valid concept, absolutely. The reason why I think people are thinking about blockchain for this is because if the goal of Web3 and beyond is to decentralize things... That's also true. Then having your... So basically right now, if you're using biometrics and you're just pairing it with your device, your entire biometric information is stored on that single device. So if anyone gets access to your device, the information is there for them to steal. Now, I personally have no idea how that's done. So I'd like to ask you that. But before I do that, I want to finish my thought real fast. So if you were to use the blockchain, you would actually have your biometric data, but it would be spread across potentially millions of different computers. And so it would be basically impossible to hack and therefore steal any individual's data, basically. You do with peer-to-peer, right? You just store fragments of your identity and then and they can be collected. And uh, yeah, there's a number of ways it can be done. So if it were done like that, would you feel more confident in it? Because... You were saying before you don't like it not being on your device, but if it were decentralized across a network, would you feel comfortable with that or would you still insist on it being on your device? If it's decentralized and obviously encrypted, which it is, and and only accessible by me, myself and I, then it's something I would feel more comfortable with, I suppose. I want to go back to that, that question I just had, which was if someone did get access to your physical device what would they have to do to be able to actually lift that fingerprint information or that facial recognition information, that signature that you've stored on your device? How how does it get taken? Because I have no idea. Well, probably you'd have to talk with those guys in the Pegasus spyware. You'd probably have to crack my passcode. Apple and all the other manufacturers make a very good effort in keeping that data encrypted and properly protected uh, within the ships themselves and it might not be that easy. Uh, I, I'm not 100% sure that could be done, but it definitely can be done, I suppose. So you just mentioned the word Pegasus, and it's something that I've heard of. I don't know how many other people listening have heard of it. Maybe they've just heard the name, but can you just describe what Pegasus is? Well, it was some kind of spyware developed by some firm out there in the world that could basically access all the information in your phone, and they could also... 
uh, assuming they would have your phone in hand, they could basically access all the information by breaking all kind of authentication codes and just get everything else. You just said that they have your phone in their hand? No, think of local authorities. These have uh, preempted the phones and then they want to access information like it happened a couple of years ago in the States. And... Wasn't Pegasus used to lift Jeff Bezos's WhatsApp messages or something? Correct. Do you know the details of that? I'm not, I'm not really sure. I've just heard that. I, I'm also not 100% sure, but I think he received some kind of image or some file that seemed harmless. And then as it got downloaded into his, I don't know, photo album or so on, and it could access everything and, and send it to some remote server where it then was yeah, shared with the world. Maybe that was the picture of his um, girlfriend's brother or something. Maybe that was the same thing. Like they were trying to blackmail him, but they sent it using Pegasus or something. I didn't follow, follow specifically the details, but uh, yeah, I, yeah, but it was something of the liking. What's your most favorite thing about being a cybersecurity researcher? Um, it's always there's something new in the industry. You know, like we, we at Cobaldos, we have been um, working heavily in, in the bot mitigation landscape. Now we're also moving into the passwordless world as, uh, with passwordless as a service tools. Also the adoption, the heavy adoption of the cloud and all the security problems that entails and the solutions that we need for that to have a proper cloud security posture management and make sure that your cloud environment in which public cloud it is, uh, is properly protected and secured. And that also when an attack comes, again, thinking of that log4j attack, you have the proper tools in place to block those zero day attacks and, and normal attacks. Yeah. So I think that we, we always have new challenges. It never gets boring, like we usually say. And there's always a new problem to try to solve. That's why I mentioned also in the beginning that we at Cobaldos, we try to solve a bit the problems that our customers might have tomorrow by having um, tools that um, yeah, innovative, disruptive, and uh, yeah. So you mentioned Log4j a few times now. I, I have to ask, what exactly is that? Well, it was an attack in which um, a specific uh, string would be sent with HTTP requests that uh, that then this would be logged by this logging mechanism called log4j. But in the background, that information could be properly processed and triggering some download of some remote code that could be then potentially integrated in your application and then dumping information from your customers, right? So basically... Um, it's been called log4j because it exploited that uh, logging mechanism in the log4j and, and, and then it would trigger yeah, this anomalous request into a remote LDAP server that would then allow that, let's call it piece of malware or malicious code to download some remote code and then have it running in your cloud infrastructure and whatnot. That sounds scary, honestly. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was a, an entertaining end of the year last year. Um, all the security vendors were then obviously trying to put in place signatures and the attackers are also trying to adapt to those signatures, trying to, to bypass them. So it's a bit like what we call sometimes a cat and mouse game. It never gets boring, but it's also sometimes very scary what the consequences of some of these things could be. Yeah? One of the other things that I'm looking at very, very carefully is quantum computing. And from the very little I know of quantum computing, it seems like all of the cybersecurity architecture and infrastructure that we have right now would basically be rendered obsolete once a quantum computer is trained enough, right? Once there's enough qubits running and there's enough of a, of a desire to destroy the infrastructure. 
what do you see and and how what timeline you know how many years not decades i think we have years how many years left do we have until quantum computing kind of takes over and destroys that uh that's a very good question probably a decade or less i don't know there are some encryption libraries in linux that have already been updated and the u.s government is also following guidelines to properly address this but yes it's it's kind of scary any private key could be encrypted in fractions of a second it's also something that's quite scareful indeed and, and could, could and should keep everyone awake and uh, but i think we're already they're already having some discussions and the industry is starting to to address, address this issue as, as soon as we can yeah. but how can you address it because Let's say, for example, you've got a SHA-256 encryption, right? It's designed using traditional code, a traditional language. A non-quantum-based system has created it and manages it. So how can you possibly create additional snippets of code to protect against this algorithm from quantum when we don't even understand how quantum works? Therefore, how can we protect against it? Because really, what I see will need to happen is we'll need to create new types of algorithms that are based on quantum te- technology. But if nobody has quantum technology, nobody can create something to protect itself from quantum technology. Yeah, that, that, that's a very complex topic indeed, uh, but we can already kind of speculate the algorithms and um, and try to propose solutions and start discussing it. But yes, I, I'm also not so much educated about quantum, but I'm following like the recent releases uh, in, in the Linux. Uh, these shows, um, but yeah, it's it's something very scary indeed. So, like, what kind of conversations are you guys having behind the scenes? Kind of developers' conversations. Most concerning topic is also to evolve into a passwordless world, and also focusing properly protecting our cloud infrastructure with the proper posture management solutions that uh, will allow us to move from a rule-based kind of detection world into kind of a more anomaly and behavior-based rules baseline profile um those are the most used topics (laughs) i'm gonna just kind of put it out there and, and say as a conclusion to this section that quantum computing has the potential to destroy every single encryption algorithm that exists today okay with that in mind any application that exists right now that you're using and by you by you i mean anybody anything you say or do right now can and will be vulnerable once quantum computing is good enough Dr. Rocha and I agree it's within within 10 years. Anything you say today that is stored on, let's say, WhatsApp server or Signal server or Telegram server, that can come back to destroy your life. So if there's anything you're saying or doing that you don't want anyone to find out about, you should not say it or do it. If you're saying or doing anything, <laughs> do it in person with your phone off and your SIM card out. Don't even have your phone near you. Like, have your phone a kilometer away from you because the audio devices are listening. Like, with this, I'm not crazy. Like, this stuff has been proven already. I'm just kind of reiterating it. So, basically, anything you can, you, anything you say or do, and you say something about it to somebody on some encrypted app, it can come back to destroy your life. So, stop doing it. Yeah, probably something of the like. Yeah. Kind of scary. That's the stuff that keeps you awake at night, I suppose, Sean. Yeah, like it has to because people are just so used to trusting that when someone says this is encrypted that like you're safe, but the reality is you might be safe today. That doesn't mean you're safe tomorrow. And that's only because technology hasn't gotten to a point yet where they can take that information. 
by the time it get, gets then kind of more available, we will certainly have everything properly updated. I'm optimistic about it, but I have to remain optimistic. Otherwise, it's just too difficult. Well, I hope so, because one of the things like uh, let's circle back to blockchain is that a lot of blockchains are not prepared for quantum technology. And some of them say that they're quantum resistant, although you don't really know if they're quantum resistant until you try to break it with a quantum computer. So you got to just kind of take people's word for it. But, you know, if we're trying to base our future on this this new technology as a financial instrument, but it's potentially, you know, fallible to quantum computing, like we just have no idea. So like I'm I'm short term and medium term, meaning like five five ish years, I'm still bullish on blockchain, even though the world's basically melting down right now. Like literally blockchain or the total market cap of, of uh, all of the cryptocurrencies has just gone under one trillion yesterday for the first time in I think a year and a half. It's like everything is melting down. But uh, I still believe that for blockchain as a technology, there's a big future for it. But long term, post quantum computing, I just don't know like where it's going to be, and it could potentially be absolutely destroyed by quantum. Although quantum could take over, and we might have quantum chains, and then it's all solved. But it's a very interesting future. Cybersecurity is very, very important, you know, from where I'm standing. And and I may sound like I'm really knowledgeable, but I am not a technical person. I'm just a guy who like spends a lot of time researching stuff. By the time it comes, I hope we will have everything kind of properly updated, our encryption algorithms, our encryption keys and, and all of that. So we still have some time. Um, and it's incredible how we how much we can adapt to a fast-paced world, the, the community and, and, and all the security vendors out there. So I, I'm relatively optimistic. Yeah. But yes, it's it's a big problem that lies ahead. And uh, From zero to 100%. How optimistic are you, or how confident are you that we'll we'll solve these problems before they des- they destroy t- traditional systems? Like somewhere between seventy and eighty percent. That's great. I'm I'm in a good mood. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wish I were you. I'm I'm more at about thirty to forty percent pos- uh, confident. No, yeah, I mean, I, I try to remain a bit positive, and uh, I, I also see how, how good we adapt against the threats that we fight nowadays and the new tools that we have so i think the industry together can can pull miracles and also we have governments also looking into this problem to help us protect our identities online and and yeah i remain optimistic until until proven wrong which might happen but i I'm inclined to feel more optimistic after what you've said just because you're in this every day and I'm not if that's how you feel, then surely you're seeing a lot more than myself and others are seeing. And so may- maybe I should be more more um, positive about that. At the same time, you said governments are working on this. I get the feeling the governments don't really care about the individual person's data. They care a lot more about their- them getting caught with their pants down with all of their secrets being exposed to the to the world if they don't protect their algorithms better, if they don't find a way to upgrade it. Plus, they're also probably looking at how they can control quantum computing in order to protect themselves and to hurt their enemies or to spy on their enemies and possibly their citizens in a more private way. So is there anything we didn't really hit upon that you would like to discuss? No, I I think we went through everything kind of in mind. Uh, We went through cloud security, we went through identity and passwordless future. so we talked about the current threats, the layer seven bots and um, 
we could probably have another session sometime about AI, but uh, let's keep it for another session as it's such a long topic. But uh, no, I, I think we cover succinctly most of the topics. And I need to pull on this now, this thread. You mentioned AI, and I was also thinking about VR, cybersecurity and VR. If you had to choose one of the two as the final topic for today, which would you choose? We'll go down that one. I don't know. Artificial intelligence, machine learning is something we are working uh, on Govolots, uh, trying to solve problems of our customers based on data that they have using algorithms that are a bit, uh, yeah, uh, out of the box and so on and trying to extract data. We usually say data is the new oil and the way, and we have data coming from so many sources. Um, uh, be it your CDN, be it your security tools, be your IoT devices, and so on. And um, so all of that data will hold some secret that will probably bring your business forward. And we're also working together with our customers and prospects to kind of help understand what would they like to extract from that data and having um, the proper algorithms kind of implemented by our department and help them like reaching that, that goal. I feel like there's a way to use AI tools to improve your cybersecurity. Like, so basically I, I've, I've seen platforms coming out where they use AI models or machine learning algorithms to scan your code as like a code review before you push code. I've seen it for software testing, um, you know, to test against the, the, you know, the different rules that you need. Maybe there's a way to use AI to kind of automate the process of looking for attack vectors, looking for, for holes in your code. Exactly. And, and it comes a bit also into what we were talking about, these kind of uh, dropping rule-based approaches into having more kind of a baseline. You know how your cloud environment behaves, what is a normal profile, everything or anything deviating from that could be a threat, right? So that calls out for attention. We also do that a lot in the, in the security world. We know how legitimate users experience and interact with websites. So any kind of deviation uh, from kind of that profile could indicate a threat. Also, you know, like when you when you interact with the mobile apps and so on, your devices will have certain characteristics. So you can use AI or machine learning to kind of build a baseline of what your normal behavior is and how normally your cloud environment behaves and so on, and then kind of use that to establish deviations, which could indicate an attack, a vulnerability being exploited and stuff like that. Right? So that's where it could come into play and it's already coming into play with, with some of our products in, 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 in our portfolio. But the idea here is always to kind of have what, we, what I like to call a positive security model. Like I know how this behaves. If it behaves differently, then something is odd and we should check into that. Like if user A never access server Y and starts accessing it and calling some remote uh, server, then that calls for attention, right? So that probably would allow you to to drop rules and and be able to detect vulnerabilities or ex, uh, or um, and their exploitations on the go as they have a different behavior, different baseline than what your typical profile is. Yeah. So if you could create a model to look for holes in your code that you need to plug, 
how easily could a bad actor use the same tool to try to find holes in your code so that they can hack you? Uh, the biggest problem is <clears throat> a lot of people embed open source code in their projects. And it's a known problem that hackers contribute actively to, or may try to contribute actively to open source and then embed that code. Code scanning will help you kind of finding some of those less secure libraries and replacing them, updating them. So that that's something that's also being done, yeah. All right, great. So how can people follow up with you? Um, yeah, find me out on LinkedIn, find our sales covalots in, in, in LinkedIn and on Twitter and, um, and in our website in a more traditional way. All right, great. So I'll have all that information as well as a transcript for this episode on the show notes at welivetobuild.com. And thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me, Dr. Roja. If you like this episode, definitely leave a review on Apple or Spotify, as well as uh, follow us on YouTube, where these episodes will live. And don't forget that entrepreneurship is a marathon, not a sprint. So take care of yourself every day. And your cybersecurity is extremely important. And as you've heard from this episode, it's constantly evolving. There's tons of people trying to hurt you and steal your, your code and your IP and you just have to stay vigilant. And uh, if you don't know much about this stuff, then hopefully this was a rude awakening for you and you start to think about how you can protect yourself and your team and, and your uh, you know your property so that you can continue to bring money in and, and serve your customers in a safe and uh, you know secure way. Thank you, Dr. Roja. Thanks, Sean.